Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I'm recording for Contrarian's Corner for Getting Square. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and my buddy Julio. Julio, it's very fucking hot in Texas right now, and... Uh, you're telling me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, depending on what part of day you watch this movie and it can just affect you and really annoy you way more. Just And it's not even the movie's fault, just the heat. It's that constant quote from King of the Hill where I think it's it might even be the first episode where Hank tells Dale it's 104 degrees. And if it gets one degree hotter, I'm going to kick your ass. So that's like <laughs> I, I'm a, avoiding really doing anything in public during the afternoon when it's like at its absolute peak hotness because it's just everyone's just on edge and angry because they're so hot and unlike the film we're here to discuss today we live in central texas there is not a beach around a surfer's paradise <laughs> to speak of no you're just miserable between buildings you're surrounded by concrete and if you're in your car then that's good if you're at home you're good Unless it's, you know, that really specific time of the year where fucking Greg Abbott wants you to bake yourself at home and <laughs> prohibits you from turning the AC on. Fuck you, Greg Abbott. That's, that's just for real. For all you Texans out there. He's sitting there like Homer on the pool episode <laughs> where he's just got a tent built around his open refrigerator and just <laughs> sitting there with his feet propped up on his little thing of jello. But anyway. The point is, Australia doesn't know how good it has it. I was about to say, we're not here to talk about Greg Abbott. We're here to put over Australia and their one contribution to the, uh, what would, what kind of action suspense, almost like a heist film. It, it falls into that oceans guy, Richie type vein caper. Is, is, is that a there genre? The caper genre? It, it is now. We should just start calling the charismatic enigma Sam Worthington the caper. By the end of the contrarian's run, he will just have like a sustained 45 seconds of nicknames. You know, he was in uh he was in Wrath of the Titans and uh is it Clash of the Titans? And yet I don't know. we we've never even thought of calling him Sam the Titan Worthington. The Titan Caper, Sam Worthington. <laughs> also known as the charismatic enigma. We are here today to discuss 2003's Getting Square, directed by Jonathan uh, Teplitsky and written by Chris Neist, or Nist. And these are, with the exception of Sam Worthington, these are all new faces to me. Uh, Julio, why don't you tell our listeners how it came to be that we landed on Getting Square? Oh, well, you know, it's June, and June is Chas Fisher month, <laughs> our patron. <laughs> 
<laughs> so chess. Here's the thing, and, and uh, I know I mentioned it before. Uh, so getting square, he he used it as a plug. He recommended it the first time he was a guest on the Contrarians, way back on the. Oh fuck! It's not live free and die hard. It's a a good day to die hard episode. That was that was Chaz's plug, and we're like, oh, that sounds good. We should watch it someday. Of course, we forgot about it. It's a, in our defense, at least in mine, Alex. It's not like Getting Square shows up on my Netflix uh, landing page or like as a no. suggestion from Amazon Prime. So, I guess Chaz got tired of waiting for us to uh, to watch it on our own. So instead, he became a patron and. And now he's demanding, he's using his patron power to demand that we watch Getting Square. He hit us with a one-two punch. It's like Getting Square, and just for the patron-exclusive feed, he did uh, the latest Little Women, uh, just for you, Alex. So, yeah, that one was a bit more... Uh, <laughs> malicious. With malice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, this worked out in our favor. We just put it off for so long that he ended up paying us to do it, so God bless. <laughs> the long con, four years That's later... Right. My second note here, it says, LOL, Sam Worthington, thanks, Chaz. So I think he's already getting the reaction he may have been wanting from this. I, I, yeah, because it came up, too, during our Terminator uh, saga that we did, <laughs> anthology, where um, we were just shitting on Sam Worthington, or I was, or something. And I, I feel like I remember him referencing this movie as something that he's good in. I may just kind of been conflating the two stories, but I seem to... Remember that happening? Well, I'm sure. I'm case, sure it also came out during our. Uh, I'm sure it also came out during our, our American Hustle episode. I think that Chaz just brings it up any chance he can. It's like no matter who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me with Bachelorette. It's yes. like, oh, are we talking about World War II movies? Well, mildly related. There's this romantic comedy. <laughs> uh, so today, 2003's Australia's Getting Square. Limited information on this one. Looks like it was its release date is just cited as 2003. My assumption is that this was just an Australian release that maybe got released in like two theaters over here, one of those really really limited runs or two theaters uh, in Australia. Yeah, it might even have been a limited release by their continent standards. But again, directed by Jonathan Tiplitsky. Just pulling up here his uh previous credentials. Looks like they're fairly uh has stayed busy since the year 2000 it looks like and then chris nist or nist uh, also wrote a film by the name of crooked business in 2008 it looks like these are uh, his only two feature length films to his uh, writing credit after that he went and pulled off a, a real life caper <laughs> yes Fuck he's now make. doing <laughs> he's now serving three consecutive <laughs> life sentences <laughs> The maximum uh, security penitentiary. Uh, Julio, so like you said, it's not exactly, you know, one of the Marvel movies or, <laughs> you know, something Meryl Streep's been in. So it's not something that we just have readily available access to. I'm going to guess you might have watched it the same way I did. I, I bought it. I rented it, excuse me, through YouTube. Uh, I did Amazon Prime. It's, okay. uh, it, it, I mean, it was, it's not like it wasn't hard to, to find, but it was also one of the things where like uh, it was the only result. <laughs> You know, because usually you start typing the title and you have a full screen of suggestions from Amazon Prime or whatever. Oh, but here, yeah, those are the best. Yeah, this is just like the one single, the one single title. It's like getting square. The the algorithm and the you know uh, autocomplete knows there's no way you could be confused, so they're just giving you the one result. There's not that. Did you mean 
<laughs> good time? It's just, <laughs> no, we, we know what you're looking for here. Say hi to Chaz. <laughs> yeah, my the YouTube version was a very nice film transfer, so good on him for it, uh, wherever that film resides, if there are any remaining copies of it. Uh, looks like it was released on DVD in 2003, and yeah, no Blu-ray or Criterion to speak of. Oh, I guess it's 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 worth pointing out in case anybody's like double checking and triple checking our Rotten Tomatoes facts. This movie doesn't actually have a tomato meter score, which was a mm-hmm. concern of Chaz's when he first brought it up. He's like, "I wish I could tell you guys to do uh, Getting Square, so you lazy fucks finally watch it." But I can't because it doesn't have a tomato meter score. And I looked and I'm like, well, Chaz, it has a an 87% audience score. We can roll with that. You're a patron. You're yeah. giving us money. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll accept these asterisks with your entries when you're paying us to do it. So <laughs> that's, that's fine. Uh, so that kind of segues into any of our potential first-time listeners that are here wondering what the hell it is these two guys do on this podcast. Is this all they do is just make jokes back and forth and talk shit about Greg Abbott? Otherwise, I got other shit to do. Uh, Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's our battle cry. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. Not being the case here with uh, Getting Square, but or Getting Square. But, uh, yeah, usually that beautiful intellectual property, that logo... Uh, certified fresh and what we'll do is we'll kind of bring the movie down to size and make a case for uh, why it's a little bit overrated maybe some of the things about it the critics were overstating and um, just kind of bring a sense of uh, balance to it uh, conversely we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is uh, rotten lowly rated typically about 30% and below and what we'll do is we'll we'll build that movie up and talk about why it is uh, that we feel it's worth seeing or what the critics overlooked about this movie and uh, really some of the underrated aspects, the the positive merits of these movies that are viewed in a negative light due to the, the ominous green splotch. Julio, that comprises the first half of the podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. If listeners want to know how we really feel about the films that we're discussing, they just have to hang around to the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, the aptly titled Real Talk, that's when we tell you how we really feel. Sometimes it's similar to how we felt, how we pretended we felt uh, during uh, Contreras' Corner. And sometimes it's something completely different. Uh, and uh, in the best case scenario, neither Alex or I know how the other one feels. If it's a movie like this one, like Getting Square, where we've never seen it before, we've never talked about it before. So, so we're going into real talk as blind as you audience members are. Uh, I am looking forward to see how Alex feels about getting square because all I know is that he texted me a uh, Guy Ritchie joke pretty early on <laughs> when we were watching it separately. And, uh, well, I mean, that's that's I think that that's just the, the beginning. From there, you can go in a positive way or a negative way. So very curious to see what happens during real talk. I do know, and Alex does know also, how Chaz feels because I, I think that he... He pushed it so hard on us because he likes it a lot. Yeah, it definitely seems to be one of his, I wouldn't say uh, ones he's most passionate about, but I get where he's coming from. When you know about a movie that you really enjoy and think is like legitimately good and it doesn't seem like a lot of people know about it, you definitely try to shoehorn it in when when you can. You try to uh, go and get that contrarian seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the big stamp. All right, so Getting Square, again, released in 2003. Uh, no information on the budget of this bad boy. I mean, if they had waited, um, what, 
seven years, I'm sure it would have quadrupled with uh, <laughs> Sam Worthington at the helm. Uh, it looks like it had a gross of a little under $3 million at the box office in Australia. So I can't imagine the budget being much higher than that, so I can't think that this would have been considered a flop or anything. Had a hell of a run with the Australian Film Award season in 2003. Australian Comedy Awards, Australian Film Institute, Film Critics Circle of Australia, the Hawaii International Film Festival of 2004. Uh, so obviously there was a lot of people besides Chaz that <laughs> want to give this movie or recognized <laughs> that this movie deserved some um, some accolades. What do you call the, the Australian Oscars? Are those uh, the Mateys? The Mateys. Yeah, I don't know. The Shoeys? The, the uh, Sheilas. There you go. Uh, Andrew Dominic was approached to direct it. I know him from to... something. Is that the, the assassination of uh, Jesse James? Jesse James. Mm-hmm. And also killing them softly. Yes. He went on to just hang out with Brad Pitt a lot, so I think it worked <laughs> out for the best for him. <laughs> All right, Julio. You had mentioned there are not any official critic ratings on the Rotten Tomatoes page for Getting Square, but it had, did you say, an 87% audience approval? That's correct. 87%. Now, I could have gone and taken uh, audience quotes from Rotten Tomatoes, but we we usually we fall back on Letterboxd whenever there's no critics quotes. So I did that. I went to Letterboxd. And uh, it's not like there's a whole lot of reviews from Letterboxd either, but I've, I found some that could help us out set the tone. So here's a few positive quotes about getting square we have alex not you alex different alex who gave it four stars four out of five and says probably sam worthington's only good performance (laughs) terrific ensemble cast keeps things light with the right hint of pathos budget crime caper that keeps you guessing until the end um sam worthington's only good performance come on man (laughs) What else has that fucker been in besides Avatar, the Titans movies, and um, Terminator? Uh, do you want more? <laughs> well, there's more Avatars coming up. And uh, he was in that movie, the, the movie with Andrew Garfield, where he's at, where he goes to war, but he doesn't want to shoot anybody. Something called Man on a Ledge that he was in. Something uh, called Fractured. Yeah. Something called The Hunter's Prayer. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge. I still need to watch that movie. Yes, that's really good. It's he's he's in it with uh, Vince Vaughn. Like they're both sort of they're not cameos. They have but they're supporting roles. And every, when they showed up because they showed up around the same time I'm like, "What? Really?" Yeah. <laughs> he's gone through like, you know, the superstar phase and now he is on the kind of like Kevin Bacon did that where he was huge for a little bit where he was just like headlining movies. And then he pulled back mm-hmm. and I was like, "I'm going to do strong supporting roles." And now, you know, he's he's headlining movies again. So I think that we're heading towards uh, uh, some Worthington renaissance. We can only hope. Yeah. And, and then and then Alex from Letterboxd, we'll see how you what you have to say about his performances. Now, Star, just Star, uh, gives it five stars and says, David Wenham steals every single scene he's in in this hilarious Australian comedy. If you're wondering who that is, okay, well, just based on that sentence, Alex, do you know who David Wenham is? Was he the guy that played Spit? Yes. Because the next sentence says, from running down the middle of the street in his leopard print underpants and rubber thongs on his feet to coping badly with a court appearance. And then, you know, it keeps going. But yeah. Um, So did you, I didn't think that this was an Australian comedy when I put it on. As, you know, as it went on, I started laughing. But uh, did you go into this expecting comedy from... 
charismatic enigma Sam Worthington? Not specifically. I just more thought it was going to be uh, like an action movie. But then, like, I quickly learned it was, like I mentioned, the Oceans movies and it, take your pick of Guy Ritchie movies. It really seemed uh, in line with those. So I figured out pretty quickly that I was in for a bucket of chuckles. <laughs> or the Australia equivalent of a bucket. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I mean, how could we not close with this five-star review from Chas Fisher himself, <laughs> who says, It had been a long time since I had seen this and was worried it hadn't aged well. But no, it's still my all-time favorite Aussie movie. His all-time favorite Aussie movie, Alex. He likes wow. it more than Babe. What That's... else What else is... What other Australian heavy hitters do we have? Uh, Romeo and Juliet? Uh, Moulin Rouge? Australia? Yeah, anything. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Australia. Uh, Wolf Creek. You ever seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. Well, none of those compare to getting square if you talk to, to Chaz. God bless. Hey, hey, th- that can be his opinion, man. <laughs> so being that this movie stands at 87% via the Rotten Tomatoes popular vote. <laughs> yeah. Be it that it may not be in line with what we typically shoot for, but the rating on Rotten Tomatoes for this movie is 87%. We still uh, hold that in the fresh regard. So during Contrarian's Corner, we will be um, pointing out the foibles and cutting this movie down to size, giving Sam Worthington the reality check he so desperately needs. Not just Sam Worthington. (laughs) Chaz is in for a rude awakening as well. And in the second portion, we'll get to how we really feel about it. So... As we do from time to time here on The Contrarians, we access the wonderful world of Wikipedia to uh, look to the plot summations. And I thought the paragraph of this was a really good lead in as this movie, you got to keep up with it or it can pull the rug out from under you or just be like one of those things where the rug gets pulled and twisted around your feet and you just get you fall down and you're tangled up and there's there's no hope. I literally had to go back and rewatch like 10 minutes of this movie because I didn't understand what was going on. Bless your heart. That means that you... You're the one, I mean, not that you usually are anyway, but uh, yeah, you're going to be driving the plot engine on this one. (laughs) I'm like, Australian owes Australian money. Australian betrays Australian. That's, my notes are pretty confusing when it comes to plot. Barry Worth, Sam Worthington, is a retired small-time criminal who is released on parole following the death of his mother so that he can care for his younger brother, Joey, Luke Pegler. Worth was falsely convicted for murder by corrupt police detective Arnie DeVeers, David Field, who is in the employ of criminal kingpin Chica Martin, Gary Sweet. Shortly after Worth is released, a corrupt accountant is arrested and his record seized, causing difficulties for Worth's new employer, Darren Daba Barrington, Timothy Spall, an ex-criminal turned restaurateur whose money is seized along with that of Chica. Worth's friend is Johnny Spit Spiteri, previously mentioned David Wenham, a heroin addict and small-time criminal, is arrested while conducting a drug deal and finds himself owing $20,000 to Chica. DeVeers continues to harass and threaten Worth, even as the latter finds success as a chef in Daba's restaurant. Despite his best efforts to remain clean, Worth finds himself under increasing pressure to return to his criminal ways to help both Daba and Spit. If it sounds... Mildly convoluted, it is even much more so <laughs> yes. than what I just read. It, this is like smoking aces, but with Australian slang. <laughs> That's a, kind of a perfect way of putting it. So then I guess 
Gary Sweet would be the Australian Jeremy Piven. He's got a more natural head of hair than Jeremy <laughs> Piven does, so God bless. All right, so this movie starts off uh, a la Reservoir Dogs, where we get kind of the aftermath of the events of the movie. Because I believe the movie starts in the present, but then when the opening sequence wraps up, the opening credits, we get a really fancy uh, title card with getting square, getting square. Uh, we find out that that was, uh, we go back to six months earlier, where kind of we talked about earlier, we find out that Sam Worthington, uh, Barry, is in prison for murder that he maintains he did not commit. And he's the the cook there. My favorite thing about this is he's supposed to be this dynamite chef, and we really don't see him ever do anything. <laughs> he makes like soup. We see, yeah, he makes soup in prison, and there's other shots of him. I just I don't know if it was he didn't feel comfortable holding a knife or cutting up food or whatever, but Sam Worthington, I guess he he wanted more money in his contract to show him actually chopping up any food, but uh, they hit you hard from the get go that he's like. He's the guy we're going to like. And, you know, it's up to you to make up your mind if he really did this or not. But he's a good guy. And I will give him credit for this. He looked the same here that he pretty much does in the last movie I saw him in, whenever that was. So the man has aged quite well. <laughs> that Australian son does the skin wonders. He takes care of himself. Uh, well, he's mostly indoors, too. I think that's that's the secret. Um, <laughs> he hasn't come out in, in a long time. <laughs> yes. Oh well, and also Alex, when he comes out, he uh, he wears sunglasses because uh, he definitely he wears the sunglasses indoors. So of course he wears them outdoors as well. Fucking Isn't dick. that your your big beef with yes. him at the Oscars? <laughs> um, Dork. My main thing at the beginning of this movie was just that you know I know Sam Worthington and uh, and of course I recognize his name. I don't even know if he's like I guess he is first build, but I just know it was like an avalanche of names that I had never seen before. Yeah. And I was like, all right, so this movie is Sam Worthington and a bunch of Australian actors that were not in Avatar. And then at the very end, the end credit, Timothy Spall, which I don't know if you know him from anything because you haven't seen the Harry Potter movies. So you don't know him as uh, Peter Pettigrew. And then he's uh, he's the Beatle in um, Sweeney Todd. And then uh, he was Churchill I don't know if you remember, but he was Churchill in uh, The King's Speech. When you see this guy, when you... Well, I don't know if you recognize his I guess name, I can kind of put the face to that now. Yeah, but when you saw him before before what I just told you, like, did you... Were you like, oh, it's that guy, that British guy, who's never, like... You know, he's always a supporting character. I basically spent a lot of this movie trying to figure out, like, who the European or American equivalents of these people would be. <laughs> and just... <laughs> Kind of kept finding myself coming up short. Can't really. Every, I will say this. It's a compliment. Everyone is very unique looking. Yeah. Do you think that uh, Australian audiences feel that way about American movies? Oh, it has to be. It, you know, not everyone is as overtly xenophobic as Americans are, but everyone has some of like just the inherent, hey, they look a little bit different than I do. But um, yeah, I, I've talked about it on here before. I'm a Chris Lilly fan, so I've watched at least to the extent of his television shows, some Australian television. And it's not, yeah, the, the, when I say unique looking, I mean, everyone has a very good look for their character and their stage presence is exactly what it needs to be. But I mean, it's for as many movies as you and I watch coming into one where I barely know anyone in it is honestly kind of refreshing. <laughs> and then they all kind of start talking and I'm like, hold on a minute. They don't talk like I talk. <laughs> what is this mate thing? Oh, Julio. 
I think he says this in his first parole meeting. If not, it's shortly after talking to one of his buddies. I, I stopped counting uh, after I got to like, I think four or five, because I thought it was just going to be like at the beginning, they were going to say, I'm going to get square yep. or I'm getting square. Uh, no, I, I just threw in the towel after a while on the counter. I mean, if this was a commentary track, we could have had like a sound effect or a sound drop that we played every time they said get square or getting square. Uh, but they waste no time right out the gate, and it is the constant of the movie, besides Sam Worthington, is some character saying a combination of the words get and square, <laughs> sometimes with an N on it. Yeah, it's funny because uh, leading up to this, I, you know, I mean, we've had Chaz's pick for at least two weeks, and uh, I could never remember the name of the movie, and you couldn't either. We kept like, asking each other <laughs> now we can't forget i will never forget because that movie drilled the words getting square into my head and uh and now i know what it means to because going in i didn't know what that meant i mean i'm assuming i do <laughs> sounds like getting square means cleaning your act and getting on the straight and narrow uh, whereas before i would have guessed that getting square to me in american slang getting square is just like evening things up like you know you wrong me and i'm gonna get square and wrong you back but that's not how they phrase it here. Yeah, they just mean like get on the straight and narrow, get on the up and up here. Yeah. They're much nicer in Australia. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a large majority of English-speaking countries are much nicer than America. Everything is so aggressive in American slang. Getting square? I'm going <laughs> to fuck you up. <laughs> Australia, getting square? I'm going to behave. As we mentioned, Barry's mother passes away, so he needs to go take care of his minor brother, Joey. He gets out. Time for him to get square. Uh, immediately, the crime life is pulling at him. We see before he officially leaves this cop that we mentioned, this dirty cop, Arnie DeVeers, who's the guy that put him away for eight years, comes in and you know he's the one who tells him his mom died. And he's just an asshole. And I think he acknowledges that this means he's going to – he knows he's going to get out now. So he's going to be watching him like a hawk to bring him back in. This is the bad guy of the movie, despite the fact that up until this point, you know, we've thought this guy is a murderer in prison. The bad guy is the cop and they spare no expense in making sure, you know, he's a, a dirty cop. You know, he's got his faux leather jacket on and just like his whole stance and mannerisms. And he, he tries to punctuate how, how horrible he is by spitting in the soup that some Worthington was cooking. And it's yes. the most pathetic spitting action I've ever seen. He just kind of like, it's almost like it dribbles out of his mouth. It doesn't make uh, crooked cops look good in Australia. Like, you know, if this was Alec Baldwin playing a crooked cop in America, you know, he would just be hacking before he he finally unloads on that soup. But here, this guy's like, it's it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> Who was the dirty cop on Batman, the animated series? Was it Flass? Uh, no, uh, Bullock. Bullock. That's who it was. That whole aesthetic, that's been imprinted on me since I was a little kid. So that's like, to me, a dirty cop is always fat and constantly sweating and just like angry all the time. So when you see someone like this just pulling up super greasy and just kind of just like in a white trash hole ensemble, uh, <laughs> it's I need to work harder on understanding in my mind that not all crooked cops are just fat guys that look like Bullock. <laughs> that's basically where I'm at. Hashtag not all crooked cops. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us stay in shape. <laughs> so yeah, Barry gets out. He gets picked up by his brother, who's with some men from uh, Chica Martin's entourage, which again is a crime lord that he had worked for previously, and he wants to make sure that his brother doesn't get tied up with them. Uh, he says, I just want to get square again. 
And uh, then the movie kind of splits. It's um, what would you say? There's three or four main stories in this movie. Uh, no, Alex. There's one main story, and that's Timothy Spall's story. Everybody else is just kind of. Well, we'll check in on them from time to time. But to me, especially the first half, it's so Timothy Spall heavy. Uh, what's his name? Bubba? Darren? Daba? Daba, right? Yeah, 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 that guy. The restaurant owner. He takes over the movie, which is weird for somebody that's getting the end credit. You know, I thought he was going to be on a couple scenes, set the story motion, disappear. But he is all over getting square. He he gets square constantly. <laughs> Uh, to me, it's like it's his story, and then everything else kind of happens in the background. Did you not have that feeling? He's definitely the most captivating character in this movie, without question. Both the Daba character, but Timothy Spall, just looking pretty much like how I want to look in ten or fifteen years, just <laughs> like overweight but not morbidly obese, constantly wearing tracksuits or like nice button ups with a big fat gold chain over the top of it. I respect the aesthetic so very, very much. Hot wife. Yeah, yes, most importantly, a hot wife <laughs> and a restaurant in Australia called the Texas Rose. Maybe that's why Chaz <laughs> likes this movie so much. There's the connective tissue between uh, Texas and Australia. There you go. Uh, yeah, he looks great. Uh, we're, we're, but that's pretty much as far as his character goes. The only other personality trait that he has it, uh, is that uh, he's on Weight Watchers, or I guess the Australian version of Weight Watchers. Mm-hmm. That's not like being on Weight Watchers is not a personality that's just like a little bit of something that adds up to personality. But it's like the, the screenwriter just stopped there. And it's like, hey, we're going to get Timothy Spall to play him, and he's going to be obsessed with losing weight. That's it. <laughs> Build me a story around that. So the Darren Barrington Daba character owns this restaurant, the aforementioned Texas Rose, that is a real clunker. They just can't bring in business to save their lives. Meanwhile, there's an accountant, a crooked accountant, who gets caught by his wife and he's banging his secretary. So she sells him out to the CIC, which is, uh, I don't mean to speak for the regulatory agencies in Australia, but I got the idea that it was kind of the a parallel of the CIA or something very similar, something tantamount to what we have as the CIA here. That was more like the the IRS. Maybe not. Because they, they were dealing with, you know, just money. Yeah, but it was like money laundering and racketeering type oh, shit. Oh, you're right. It you're wasn't right. just like they were trying to pull in, hey, the guy was a $67 in taxes. Get his ass. <laughs> so Darren's in the middle of uh, selling his restaurant for a big business deal, and then all his money gets seized because of this. So he's just months and out in the middle of surfer's paradise oh trust me it take it took me a while too to figure out okay how the fuck is this gonna have anything to do with sam worthington much less the beginning of the movie where some guy got shot in a failed heist yeah i have nothing against timothy spall but i didn't sign up to watch a timothy spall movie when i started getting square i i don't even know that he's in the poster i i went in expecting a sam worthington vehicle and sam worthington kind of got written out of the movie at the beginning. So, I mean, I was relieved when he came back, but it was just, I felt cheated. And that that lasted through the entire, you know, what is it, hour and 40 minutes, hour and 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And then, I mean, for everything that didn't work in the movie uh, for me, I have to assume that part of it could be just kind of uh, uh, not even getting lost in translation because I understood it, but more as in like, it was tailored very specifically to Australian audiences. And so I wasn't vibing with that, you know, 
Like, mm-hmm. I wonder, again, how do Australian audiences feel when they're watching American movies and it's just American slang? Does it not resonate with them the way that their slang doesn't resonate with me? Like, you know, Spall is the worst, but pretty much everybody is just like, made this and made that and the Sheilas and the Coldies and the G'day. And, you know, it was just, it made me feel like, it's funny because, you know, I'm original from Peru, but this movie made me feel like a foreigner. I, I was just like on the outside <laughs> looking in. There's a very fine line to walk in integrating, you know, colloquialisms and local expressions into an action film like this. That obviously the god of this shit, Guy Ritchie, had mastered to the point of like it feels fun and like you're learning something. To whereas here it's just like overwhelming. It's like, look, I understand it's the joke from Futurama, the wrestler that's the big heel is the foreigner and he just yells at the audience i have my own customs i ain't from here and that's like it got to a point in this movie where i was just like all right i know this isn't going to change it it made like it was the classic like i said american xenophobia where it's just like why aren't they saying like you know hang 10 or (laughs) sit on it or what's the hap (laughs) no I mean, much more offensive was the next shot of Sam Worthington at a gym throwing some of the most ass punches I've ever seen. Like I said, I'm not fucking Francis Ngano, you know, I'm not Floyd Mayweather, but I I know a good jab when I see one, and I know a good cross when I see one, and I also know someone who's actually never thrown a punch in his life, and that's Sam Worthington here. Uh, chin straight up in the air, no tucking, doesn't roll the shoulder. I mean, uh, you know... I know Sam Worthen can't fight, so if he, he wants to prove me wrong, he can come find me. I'll I'll cash in that Logan Paul money and make twenty million dollars to fight <laughs> Sam Worthington on pay per view. But he's in a gym, and this is we get the one female character of consequence here is introduced, uh, Annie, played by Freya Stafford, who she's like um, not a parole officer, like a correctional officer, she yeah, work with minors or something. Uh, Yes, correction officer. Actually, call her that because she's uh, monitoring his brother. Correct, and they seem to know each other from a previous life. Could you feel the absolute lack of sexual chemistry <laughs> between them, dude? It's ridiculous. She had more chemistry with the punching bag that was between them for a little while. <laughs> she had some good strikes. I can see that she had actually taken this seriously. So yeah, Daba is looking for money. He is. Also looking for Spit, our comedic relief character in this, due to some previous business dealings they have. David Wenham uh, of Lord of the Rings fame. Do you know him from anything else? I don't know him. I barely know him from Getting Square. I don't know who he was in Lord of the Rings. And uh, this might be my most controversial position about this movie, and that is that he got on my nerves from minute one. So... That was rough, because I think that next to Timothy Spall, he gets the most attention uh, in the runtime of this film. He, I just don't find him funny. And I know that, you know, we, I just read those quotes, and, and he's certainly, the movie pitches him as, like you said, the, the comedic relief. But he's just over the top and really stupid and just annoying. So once we're done with this episode, the first order of business is trying to forget about... David Wenham, that's his name. <laughs> Already started. <Yes. laughs> yeah, this guy, David Wenham, he's just like, he's what happens when, uh, when an Embry contender goes too far. 
they, they just they just let him run with it. And uh, no, he needed to be reined in. A, a little bit of a, his stick would have gone a long way. But here it's just overkill. You know, he's always and it's always the same thing. He's just an idiot. That's the joke. He's he's always intoxicated and and he's just saying stupid things and not getting what's really going on. And I just I think that you can make a character like this work. You can make him be like endearing. And it's like, oh, well, it's, he's kind of charming in his helplessness, his innocence, despite being sort of a crook. Uh, but for me, it wasn't working because he was just annoying. And so I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just our sensibilities. Again, living in America, you just grow to be more jaded. And you're like, I can't I can't really stand hanging out with this guy. But in Australia, they're more open minded. They're like, oh, this poor guy. Come here. We'll we'll feed you. My next note here says, I, too, have seen Guy Ritchie movies. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> okay at what point alex at what point did you go it's it's unavoidable it stopped being the white elephant in the room and it became the the elephant that's stepping on everybody in the room like when it was just definitely like- the introduction <laughs> to no no discredit of david winham because he's a talented actor and he's he's got some pretty good uh moments in this movie but the whole introduction of that character spit i was just like all right Get it. Brad Pitt and Snatch, you know, that type of thing. I was, I've seen it in the past and I've, I saw it in the future. And that was kind of just, uh, that's where my initial line was drawn. Uh, we get the job interview scene as Barry's looking to become a cook elsewhere. We, we get it. He is having a hard time getting a job because he's a convict. It's illegal though. Well, maybe not in Australia, but it's illegal to ask somebody why they were in jail. Right? Like, fuck, I know yeah. I couldn't do that when I was doing job interviews. Well, this guy, he might own his own place, so he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> At one point, I got confused because it seems like Toblitsky had made a conscious effort to make the Annie character look like a different person in the gym scenes than like the real life interactions. I was like, wait, wait, I had to stop. I was like, are there two girls now? Did I get confused and lose track of what was going on? Because I have a note here that says, who's the girl? Are there two girls? <laughs> but uh, his younger brother, Joey, is obviously falling down the rabbit hole. He's smoking pot. and He's hanging out with the wrong crowd. And Barry's working hard to get a job so he can get him away from this. Uh, there's this shot of him coming out of like an interview that doesn't go well. Julio, do you know what I'm talking about? This I paused the movie as there's this shot at like a burger shack that has a large Native American painted on the wall. <laughs> And um, they sync the shot up to where Sam Worthington is, where his mark is. And they shoot it from the side like a profile to make it look like he's wearing the Indian headdress. <laughs> My note says, what in the absolute fuck was that headdress shot? <laughs> it Can you so- provide me any reasoning or context as to what that was? Chaz, you, you too. You're on the line here. Well, you know, Avatar took forever to shoot. So maybe... That was them acknowledging that Sam Worthington had been cast in a futuristic sci-fi remake of Dances with Wolves. It was just them kind of like, hey, if you know, you know. I guess. I'm still baffled by it. I just love that you that you stopped it. I, I, as you described it, I remembered it. But I, you know, I just plowed on. I was like, take the me same, to the next set piece. Bewilderment <laughs> did not wash over you as it did with me. Well, no, because I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, Alex. They kind of shot themselves in the foot with that beginning, with that opening sequence where they're like, it's a heist, and then you know, what's his name, funny guy gets shot, and everything. I, I 
it, that movie, the movie that that opening sells you, is not the movie that we ended up watching. Mm-hmm. We basically watched a prequel to that set piece. And that prequel was not a crime movie. The, the movie that we watched was just kind of like a comedy of situations where like people don't know how to handle their money. You know, they're, they're, they, they get into financial shenanigans and there's like court dates and investigations, but there's no, there's no violence. There's no guns. <laughs> the confrontations are pretty tame, which is fine, but they don't open with this like major action set piece because then that's what I was waiting for. I was like, all right, when, when do we, when does it start? When does it become an action movie? And, uh, it never happened. <laughs> so, so yeah, I blew past the, the weird shot with the Sam Worthless profile and the, the headdress and, and every other thing. I, I was Because in my mind, I'm like, this doesn't matter because the movie hasn't started yet. And then at some point, mm-hmm. I was like, man, we have 40 minutes to go. And I guess I know where they're going now, but it was just too late by then. We get more appearances from DeVere's, the dirty cop. He's just kind of like a bad headache that just won't go away. He just keeps showing up. He's just, yeah, he's he's the cold that Barry can't shake. He's just there to constantly remind him, I'm going to get you. He's COVID. Uh, it's, it's here to stay. <laughs> he's here to stay. So David Wenham, Spateri, meets up with Barry, and he, he's obviously a heroin addict, and it's to the point of being subtle enough to, if you're just watching his mannerisms, you get it to the point of, like, it just gets more and more blatant until we get a shot of him shooting up to the point of it just being like, okay, we we got this in the first 30 <laughs> seconds, dude. Didn't have to beat us over the head with it. But he wants to get sober. He has these dreams of going to Israel where there's a program there that can help him get cleaned up. He's going to do this one last job for um, Cheeky Martin to uh, get the money he needs, get him clean with him, get him... <laughs> Get him square, if you will. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we get like the friendship bonding. It's not even a montage. It's just a quick series of scenes that occupies maybe three or four minutes to show that they're friends. He knows that uh, Spit has a bad reputation. He also explains to the Annie character that he's the guy that helped get me through prison. And, he you know, he was a friend to me and friendship is important. And he's someone that, you know, would would die for me type thing. So we get the basic gist uh, and the importance of their relationship. You know who like the, the good version, the properly executed version of the Spit character is uh, Spud in Trainspotting. Which is funny because we just talked about that actor on the Snowpiercer episode, but he is kind of the out of that group. He's kind of the loser, the the really dorky, kind of helpless, you know, member of the gang. But the difference is that Spud is charismatic enough, and he does enough other than being a goofball to to really get you to care. So it's not mm-hmm. just uh, American cinema showing off. It's not just Guy Ritchie showing off, uh, you know, showing Australian cinema how to do it. Also, Danny Boyle. Who uh, I wouldn't pin Danny Boyle to any country. He's more of an international <laughs> talent. He's like Bono. He's just a citizen of the earth. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the introduction to the Spit Barry relationship is Barry could only find a job working at a gas station, and he and no, he kind of helps Spit rob the cash register. So we see that they they know how to work together in these seedy situations. Fortunately, though, Barry gets a, a better job. Uh, he starts working at the Texas Rose, and this is where he begins his relationship with Daba. The most unlikely team-up you you ever... I mean, it's a team-up that I didn't know I wanted, and it's because I didn't want it. Timothy Spall and Sam Worthington, that doesn't, in my mind, doesn't sell tickets, doesn't really get you pumped 
to see what happens next. It's just some, well, some combinations don't need to happen. Daba is in need of assistance because, like we mentioned, his money's tied up, his business is going down, and then the kingpin of crime in the area, Chica Martin, came in and basically said, I want to go into business with you so I can use this place to wash my dirty money, you know, mm-hmm. in the vein of just talking about Ozark recently. And he turns him down and says no. So there's tensions building and bubbling under the surface. My next note here says, enough with the fucking flute. Did did you have enough of the Calypso jazz interstitials in this movie? Oh, yeah, no. Basically, anytime something of significance would happen, it's like Ron Burgundy playing at the club in the first Anchorman. My note says, do they not have cool music in Australia? Because that's that's a key element. Kylie Minogue, bitch. (laughs) Well, not not available for independent Australian movies, apparently. No. They they have one song, like one actual like, oh, they must have paid good money to get this song in the movie. And that happens. They, they saved it for some Worthington's uh, Oscar clip. But the rest is just kind of this this thing that they did. It's like they put it together on GarageBand or something. And and that's not that doesn't work with the formula that they're trying to ape. Uh, Guy Ritchie, he's all about the needle drops, the, 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 the crime caper kind of genre it's all about placing the right song at the right time and that just pushes through so that's crazy because they seem to have paid so much attention to everything else the guy richie did and somehow they they completely forgot about the soundtrack so spit is arrested by the cops in an attempted heroin drug deal and he is brought in basically to be deposed of all the people in the of all the criminals that were tied up with this crooked accountant, uh, they're bringing them in and having them, you know, fess up for lessened sentences and whatnot. And so he's going to be like the big one because he was the one that transported two hundred thousand dollars for Daba uh, a couple years prior to the time in which this movie's set. So he gets arrested, brought in, kind of back and forth. The deposition scene mixed in with Barry explaining to uh, his brother uh, how he was set up by Chica and the uh, DeVeres and how he basically explained to him, this is why I don't want you to go anywhere near that. I didn't do this. And, you know, I had to do eight years for it. And then the deposition scene, which goes on forever, basically ends with Spit not playing ball with the CIC and feigning ignorance to the entire situation. He pulls it off pretty convincingly as a, a heroin addict, but this gets him out for the time being. And then this is kind of where I lose sight of the plot. <laughs> so dude, if I'd cared enough, this is where I would have drawn just like on my notes, it would have been just the drawing of a, a guy with his, myself, my, my hands up, just like, fuck it. I can't, I don't understand. <laughs> it's just, so I mean, I don't know. Tell me, tell me what you think is happening. Well then like spittoon, gets you know out on leave or whatever and then the way i saw this is that because that money didn't get seized maybe whatever the case is now chica martin wants spit to pull off a a bank robbery for him or something he wants him to do his dirty work of some sort what is exactly is he wanting him to do well it's not that chica martin because the 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 cop the dirty cop is also part of it and yeah he because the cop is the one that has information he says there's a he knows exactly when when's the right time to hit this place which is like a i don't know it, it seemed like a mall or like some sort of big place that would have a lot of money and 
I guess if uh, if Spit does that, then he can move on and and finally get square. <laughs> but but it's an orc. It's an attempted robbery orchestrated by Devere's and Chica Martin, and he tells he'll pay Spit you know twenty grand or whatever it is up front, and then he needs three people and he'll pay them ten grand each. Running concordantly with this, there's parts that make it seem like Barry's gonna bang Darren's wife, but that never really pays off with anything. <laughs> yes, that was a that's talk about a wasted opportunity to me. Th- this is the one moment in the movie where Sam Worthington shines, and it's of course a part of the movie that has nothing to do with anything else, which is just him being a chef that is cooking the kind of food that that these Weight Watchers people are interested in. Like it's delicious, but it's also low calories. <laughs> has yeah. zero nothing to do with you know crime with with uh chica with you know drugs anything but it's there it's in the movie it's Worthington like a chef pretending to cook and then the customers at the restaurant being very happy it's just I, I want to watch that movie make that movie some Worthington the chef just cooking for the wives of uh ex-criminals who are trying who have gotten square Make that a reality show. Yes. Sam Worthington cooking for the wives of ex-criminals. That's that's all you need right there. It doesn't have to be said in Australia. <laughs> but maybe you can do it. Like, you know, one season in Australia, one season in America. At one point you go. Just like, back and forth. Yeah. Throw some shrimp in the Barbie. <laughs> so this is where we get the Oscar clip of Sam Worthington just getting roughed up by that cop that has it out for him. But then he also goes to see Annie. My note says, what in The Departed? Because this plays off almost a mirror of what would happen in The Departed a few years after this, of the scene of um, Leo Leonardo DiCaprio showing up at Vera Farmiga's apartment as uh, Pink Floyd plays. It's actually, it kind of blew my mind watching it. I'm not going to lie. I was like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> well, uh, Pink Floyd is not playing, though. No, and I don't want to imply that Martin Scorsese has ever seen this film, but... Uh, <laughs> It, it yeah, like I said, it kind of tripped me out for a minute. I was I had to like check myself and then check back what year this was made. Uh, so this is I'm glad that we agree that this is uh, Worthington's Oscar clip because it's mostly a silent performance, which might be why that enhances it because he doesn't have to really touch dialogue. It's just him sitting in his car. He gets pulled over by the cops, and then you know the cop steps out, smokes outside, makes him wait, and then we don't even see him get beaten up. We just see him show up, and he's so bloody at the apartment of the corrections officer. But, you know, the entire time it's just that song playing, and Worthington doesn't say anything. But it's all in his facial expression, maybe his lack of facial expression, maybe it's just in the eyes. But it's like, all right, well, if you'd been this intense through the entire movie, maybe I would have enjoyed it more. Maybe you would have made more of an impression. Yeah, I don't even know if I could say it's a flash of brilliance, but it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely the most impactful scene of the movie. I'm trying to look up the name of the song that was used in this. If it's not a flash of brilliance, it's a, a whisper of brilliance. <laughs> yeah, uh, a stiff breeze of brilliance. <laughs> Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Into My Arms was the name of the song that was used during the scene. It's actually pretty good. Nick Cave ain't no Pink Floyd, though. Oh, very few people are. So, Spit smartens up Barry, wants him in on this heist. Barry smartens up Daba and says, you know, this is how you're going to get your money back. And after you get it, you're going to sell me the Texas Rose. And then Daba takes this information to the CIC and sells it to them about this heist that's going down. And it's all 
building and building and crescendos in Barry and Spit outsmarting everyone in the situation to where they go to this location and end up actually robbing the gentleman that if you had blinked, you would have missed it earlier in the movie. <laughs> the guy who is washing the cash for uh, Chica Martin. And then they rob it and make it seem like Devere's had something to do with it. And then they just kind of get away with it and spit disappears. Yeah, it's it's uh, even more convoluted than, <laughs> than it sounds. And you know why? You know why? Because I'm trying to make our listeners not go cross-eyed just from the dialogue here uh, of us trying to explain this movie. I mean, you can check it out for yourself. It's it's an easy watch and being 100 minutes long. But this, uh, like I told Julio just a few minutes ago in here, I had to back it up to make sure I understood the end of this movie because I was just like, hold on, I'm lost. Well, the problem is that they try to fool the audience. It's not enough that Sam Worthington and... Uh, and Spit are pulling a fast one on on the crooked cop and the mob boss, right? It's just that on top of that, they want us, the audience, to believe that Sam Worthington is also double-crossing Spit, which it's impossible. Like, they, they haven't set things up enough for us to believe that. Sam Worthington has been an angel the entire movie. So the the way that this plays out is that in the middle of this heist... Sam Worthington shoots Spit, and uh, and then you know he brings him to the van, and he's like, "Oh, he lies," and he says that he got shot by someone else that was defending the safe. The other two guys bolt, and then once they're alone, Spit, you know, opens his eyes. And he's like, "Oh no, just kidding. He was not dead." Well, you know what? I never thought that he was dead. I never thought that Worthington had betrayed him. But but you just wasted a lot of time, and you just made things a lot more complicated by trying to confuse me. You know, that's. I think that the movie would have been more pleasant to watch and much more if it just be more straightforward. Just let us into the plan from the beginning, and then we don't have to worry about trying to figure out. Because what I thought, because they're all wearing masks, I thought that maybe, like, I didn't know who had shot him. I was like, I thought it was supposed to be Sam Worthington, but since he's wearing a mask, and there's no way that Sam Worthington would have shot him, then it was maybe one of the other two guys, and that. Just what you're doing is you're, you're fucking with your audience when you shouldn't. You know, at this point, we should just be all on the same page and just enjoying the fact that these guys are finally uh, getting the revenge. But instead, we're trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too. It's clearly this the tension here is it's supposed to be the payoff of we've only heard how good Sam Worthington, the Barry character, was as a criminal. And here is where he takes over and he... You know, is a real badass all of a sudden, and it. But like you said, the whole movie existed up until this point to just chop his balls off and make him seem like this guy <laughs> who just exists to please housewives with his salads that he makes. And then here it's like, oh no, remember he's a badass now. It's a it's a shift in tone to the point of almost just like I couldn't help but just kind of laugh at him. Everyone get on the fucking floor, and you know, <laughs> Sam Worthington trying to be a badass. Yeah, he's he's not even. Like, he's certainly not De Niro in Heat. He's definitely not Val Kilmer. I don't think he's even Tom Sizemore in, in, in Heat. He would be, a, I don't know, what shitty bank robbing movies do we have over here in America? What's that shitty one with Bruce Willis? Is it Last Man Standing? Oh, there's one called Bandits with Bebo Thornton. Yeah, uh, Bruce Willis and Last Man Standing, directed by uh, Walter Hill, starring Bruce Willis, Christopher Walken, and Bruce Dern. He's not even Bruce Dern <laughs> in Last Man Standing. <laughs> He's not even Mr. Brown in Reservoir Dogs. No. Yeah, so he, they just kind of get away with it. 
And then because Spit is a wanted person and they help fake his death, he's got to get gone, though. So uh, Barry takes over the restaurant where Joey works there now. Presumably everything's fine with Annie because they're dating. <laughs> and um, the cop goes away because he sets up a scenario in which it makes it look like he did it tied in with Chica Martin. And so right before they're both apprehended by authorities, they think that you know each other's to blame for something so there's going to be the bad blood there uh so everything plays off as it should i guess in this happy ending of a movie look if, and, if you're listening to this episode and you haven't watched the movie just uh rest assured the good guys win bad guys lose <laughs> zero casualties and then i swear to god the last thing that happens in the movie is daba and Barry get a postcard. It's not marked, but you know it's from Spit, and it says "Got Square" or "I'm Square," <laughs> something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then kind of in a in a very symbolic gesture that represents how I feel about David Denham's uh, performance. Sam Worthington burns the postcard, <laughs> and then we hit credits. And then Someday by Sugar Ray starts playing, or the Australian Sugar Ray cover band starts playing Someday. It's uh, the Nick Cave cover of Someday. There you go. Anyway, that was Getting Square, and I definitely feel that we got square by the end of that movie. And now I need to get square with Chaz for making me watch this. <laughs> All right, let's go to real talk. Excuse me. Who's paying for my bus fare today? I'm sure someone will sort that out. Yeah, well, who, mate? I'm on a pension, you know. I haven't got no money. Well, we'll come to that later. I see. There you go. That's the same sort of shit them coppers were on about, trying to get me to say things that I'm supposed to have on nothing about. He's full of shit, mate. That's it. Well... Yeah, that's it. Trying to verbal me. You're trying to put words into my mouth and that. No, no one is trying to put words into your mouth. Yes, you are. No, we're not. Yes, you are. You're doing it now. Doing what, Mr Spateri? Well, what do you think, mate? Trying to get me to say things you want to hear. Mate, I already told you, I don't know nothing about that shit. Yes, well... Oh. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I didn't mean to say shit. It's just that this fucking guy's getting to me. He's trying to put words into my mouth and that. Look, I'm not smart or nothing. I only went to junior at school. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we tell patrons what they can look forward to on our patron feed. And non-patrons get to listen to what they're missing out on for not being patrons. So we're going to have, of course, as usual, our uh, deleted clips. Just audio that didn't make it into the episode. Also by now, that patron feed should have our uh, exclusive episode on Little Women 2019 edition. As we mentioned Mm. before, that was another Chaz demand. That's just... We said malicious, and and there's really no other way to look at it. (laughs) And then we have, of course, After Hours. Which is the patron-exclusive segment where Alex and I share with you other things that we watched, other things that we read, other things that we played. Sometimes they're recommendations, sometimes they're not. Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? Friend of the podcast, Gerald, had me on two peas on a pod. And I'm very thankful for that. I had a good time with it. And we discussed our top five, uh, I call them sex comedies. Some people call them raunchy comedies, what have you. And from that discussion, Kingpin made my list. And when we were done recording, I was just 
basically reflecting on how great that movie is and it's free on YouTube. So I ended up just watching it last night after he and I recorded and I want to talk about why that movie's so good and very underrated. And I feel like, uh, almost sometimes gets lost in the shuffle in the great nineties comedies. And, um, yeah, we're going to talk about the movie Peter Farley should have won an Oscar for, uh, Kingpin. <laughs> it was his honorary. It says green book, but we already know that. Yeah, reading between the lines <laughs> it's the scorsese departed one we know what it's really for yep uh well on my end alex have you seen footloose the the kevin bacon movie yeah but i couldn't recount much of any dialogue or anything and it's one of those i've seen on tv and probably at a party three or four times so that means that more than likely you haven't seen the 2011 footloose remake reimagining with dennis quaid miles teller miles teller's the dude in it Miles Teller is the 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 friend. He plays a Chris Penn role. I was still working at the theater when it came out. Me too. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, I will tell you about it. That's not a movie that I would say everybody needs to go out and see, but it's definitely a movie worth talking about, especially, you know, if you're familiar with Footloose, uh, which, which I am. So... I'm going to be telling you about Footloose. And then I literally, I watched this right before watching Getting Square, which might have affected my state of mind while I watched Getting Square. And this is Danny Boyle's Trance. That that might have also come out while you were still working at the theater. It's uh, James McAvoy, Rosario Dawson, the French guy from uh, Black Swan. I guess maybe. All right. We'll see if I, if I can refresh your memory. So, Contrance After Hours is going to be uh, Kingpin, the... 2011 Footloose, and Danny Boyle's Trance. What a lineup. And also, we'll have uh, our uh, pre-recording notes. Just a lot of cool stuff for, for patrons everywhere. And, by the way, before I forget, we have a new patron, Sam Hurley from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs, just joined the Contrarian Supplements. Yeah. You can be like him. Just go to uh, patreon.com slash contrarian prime. Look at our tiers. See if any of those look interesting enough for you to join and contribute. For the price of a Gatorade for some Starburst. I mean, you can't even go and get a bag of Takis or fucking flaming Hot Cheetos anymore for less than a dollar. So skip that snack and throw a dollar our way. You get a bunch of really cool nifty extras and get to listen to some of our more uh, unfiltered discussions. Some of our more unabashed reviews of movies such as bachelorette and uh what's the pedophile movie you made me watch beautiful girls beautiful girls yes <laughs> and and by now you'll also get to listen to alex suffering through yet another version of little women something which he said he wouldn't do ever again i'm not excited about this i'm gonna Hopefully you can't access that yet. I'm going to try to push that off as far as I can, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, Scrounge up some change out of the cup holder in your car. Throw it our way. Uh, if you want to throw us a few extra bucks, you can get us to fully discuss, dive deep into a film of your choosing. Uh, we thank and love all of our wonderful patrons, and we are accepting applications on a daily basis. So patron.com slash contrarian prime. Head on over. Check it out. And now, an HBO feature <laughs> presentation, The Contrarian's Real Talk discussion of Getting Square. Yeah, the Saturday afternoon matinee film that we watched. Uh, just recapping general shit here. It was released in 2003, again, directed by Jonathan Teplitsky, uh, written by Christopher Neist. I'm just going to settle on that. His last name spelled N-Y-S-T. 
Uh, made a little under $3 million at the Australian box office. Uh, if you want to know the awards it racked up, be sure to head over to its Wikipedia page. But again, Australian Comedy Awards, Australian Film Institute, Film Critics Circle of Australia, the Hawaiian International Film Festival, the IF Awards. It, it certainly carved out its niche and its part of the globe. And in many ways, set the table for what was to come over the next 10 years. And that is trying to make Sam Worthington a thing. (laughs) This movie started it. This movie is to blame. When we were on live stream for The Cure, for anyone that listened to that, recap real quick, Julio, you'll recall that one of our questions we threw to the audience was, have you ever taken Mark Wahlberg seriously in anything? And we talked about how Mark Wahlberg is like, to some people, he's just Mark Wahlberg with a different you know, outfit on in different movies and he's all the same and shit. And my defense is always, you know, the departed's great and, um, pain and gain fucking love him in that this movie more than anything defines my issue with Sam Worthington. And it's, I just do not believe a fucking thing that guy does. (laughs) It's like almost to the point where everything I've watched him in, I'm like, he doesn't want to be there. And it's, (laughs) and it's not even, he's so good that can mask it. It's just, his general disdain for his fellow man just permeates through the screen <laughs> and his desire to not really want to interact with other people, which I, I can sympathize with. I really am not a people person at all and don't really like mingling with others. My chosen profession also isn't acting. Uh, so <laughs> it, what are you saying is if you were an actor, though, you would be like Sam Worthington. No, if I was an actor, I would be. I would try to be the most beloved. I would be Roberto Benini. Everyone would be insane <laughs> about me. I'd say I'm the nicest guy in the world. Anyway, definitely jumping in. Uh, were you able to find any negative reviews on any of the letterbox, the follow-up for this movie, or even uh, some of the, the audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? Some. Here's the problem with the negative reviews on Letterbox. They're not particularly constructive. Like uh, <laughs> There's this one star from Barb Brady, which just says typical Australian garbage, terrible writing and overacting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that seems like a negative overreaction. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I found some. Uh, I found some that were you know kind of like three stars, like positive, but they had like some interesting things to say. So 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 let's go with that. Bistromash from well, from Letterbox. Uh, it's like a Guy Ritchie film set in Australia. No shit. <laughs> That's the entirety of the review, <laughs> which See, I guess we'll get to it. But like that, that's I'm going to be in Chaz's eyes, be wrong and cruel about this movie. But right off the bat, that that is it. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Having a movie like this, it, you know, it's like the local band that gets a hit type thing. I completely understand why Chaz would like this and get excited about this movie and view it as like a hidden, not only a hidden gem of like a a cool crime thriller action movie, but also something uh, that can instill national pride and things like that. So uh, at the same time, that review is exactly it. It's just uh, the text I sent you earlier watches one guy, Richie movie. (laughs) I would say watches maybe three or four before he married Madonna. <laughs> yeah. He missed that part of the career. Okay, how about two stars from Adam? and says, maybe the humor is lost in translation because none of this plays like comedy to me. David Wenham seems to be incessantly, ineffectively mugging for laughs, while Sam Worthington barely registers on camera. 
There's not much any performer could do with such a lame script, which is obsessed with half-baked plot turns and the phrase getting square. <laughs> um, I picked it because... It's mostly accurate, although way too mean spirited. Like I would, I would make the same points, and I will make the same points. But I like this guy sounds like he had a really bad time, and I was just like, ah, okay, it's not funny. <laughs> uh, some of it was funny. Okay, but now here here's the, the centerpiece. Uh, this is from Mel Killingsworth, who is a screenwriter who's been on uh, Chas and Stu's. Uh, podcast uh, Draft Zero where they talk about screenwriting where they just analyze things way more you know they're they're like purely about craft they're not just making jokes and being silly like we are and Mel's been on their show a few times and uh, I respect her opinion the same way that I respect Chaz's and and Stu's I probably respect hers more than Chaz's because I haven't heard her say anything good about American Hustle yet she's pretty smart and so she didn't give Getting Square uh, a star rating she never does on Letterboxd. Um, mm. But this is, her review is pretty short, but I think it makes, it gets to the bottom of it somewhat. Or at least, it, I think it provides like the, because she's she lives in Australia. So I think it provides like that, that Australian point of view that we might be missing, seeing that we both live here in Texas, the United States of Texas. So she says, the question is noir or nah? The tone and genre <laughs> of, the, <laughs> right? <laughs> The tone and genre of this film is a bit hard to pin down, which just makes one frustrated. Australia isn't turning out more heist comedy neo-noir, which play with structure and transitions and take their time with dialogue exchanges outside of prisons in heavy bag rooms or on laden dinner tables in criminal fronts. Verdict, an Aussie noir. The main story is Gold Coast neo-noir, like its compatriots, it favors hinting at evil deeds than lingering on the explicit depictions thereof. Back alley, in this case kitchen deals, and mistrust of authority except for that one good cop who is usually at odds with the system, at least somewhat. Its setting requires it to trade fedoras for thongs and rain-soaked for sun-soaked. Its addicts are more into windbreakers than soiled white button-ups. And the dialogue is more, what are you on about, mate, than you know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? But its angles and blocking are noir to their core. That story is intersped with long segments, which are basically Abbott and Costello down under. David Wenham has never been better. Like Aussie classic The Castle, this might be a weird one for other countries to grasp in that while the humor comes from several somewhat over-the-top characters, it's not caricaturing them without a genuine affection for them. And I, I am fully prepared to admit that the reason this movie didn't really work for me, certainly didn't work the way it seems to work for Mel and for Chas and for all those other people that gave it four and five stars is that I don't live in Australia and there's like a little bit of the charm. I don't know. It, and I really want to talk about this. Just like the experience of watching something that was made, so to speak, in your backyard, because mm-hmm. I found that to work for the movie and to work against the movie. What's your experience with that? And how do you think, how do you think that it affects you in this specific scenario? Like, you know, do you feel like you were, missing out on something because this was a movie made in Australia and you don't live in Australia? Not entirely. There's really no way for me to not sound like a fucking asshole about this. Of just like, (laughs) I've seen like, I've seen this movie before, but done better. But then when I try to like qualify or validate Chaz's adoration for it, because it's, 
he's getting an Australian version of that. To me, that makes me sound like an asshole. It makes I agree. me seem like <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I, I mean, I agree because that's how I felt too. I was like, man, how can I express how I feel about this movie without sounding condescending? <laughs> Right? Yeah. I was like, oh, I get it. You like it because you're Australian. And well, you poor Australian guy, you don't get, we get them all the time here in the States. And, but that's not quite it. I mean, I think that, no. uh, I mean, you just said it, right? We've seen this movie many times before. But to be fair, we haven't seen it in Australia. Like, we haven't seen it set in Australia. Like, is that enough to make it stand apart and, and you know, be distinctively good? I, I don't think so. But I think that maybe it does if you live in Australia. We were watching, what, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you're like, oh, man, I've been in that, you know, barbecue yeah. place. And, yeah. Uh, so I imagine something like that happens if you're, if you're an Australian in this movie that is a pretty, uh, I would say, you know, like solid facsimile of, of you know, a Guy Ritchie movie or a, the, the kind of crime heist movie, it just came out of your country and it's made with actors that, you know, I mean, I imagine there's a good chance that most of the actors that we don't know here are somewhat familiar for people that live in Australia. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know, you know, it, it's, I don't know. I can't judge how Australian it looks. Like we make jokes when we did Jason Takes Manhattan, we're like, oh, that's, uh, you know, New York by way of Vancouver or whatever. But mm-hmm. In this case, it's like, I imagine it's Australia by way of Australia, but is that, are they picking like the super Australian thing or is it just the, the way that people talk? I don't know. I, I, I really, I am sure we're going to get a response from Chaz after this episode, <laughs> setting oh, yeah. us straight or at least clarifying, you know. He's going to get square with it. us. <laughs> the American version of getting square. I guess we can circle back to the, the Australian experience and, and the international experience but I guess to get back to the what you were saying earlier, the, the Sam Worthington phenomenon, I think I'm with you in this case. Like I, I famously have defended him in previous sucks. conversations we've had. Like he sucks. <laughs> so do you, the, do you think? Do you feel he sucks just because there's nothing going on like behind the eyes? It's just like what did we watch recently that was similar to this? I'm trying to remember. We didn't. I'm sorry, Julio. I was thinking of The Town because I was thinking of a movie I watched recently where someone was trying to get out of the, the crime mm-hmm. life, but it kept pulling them back in. And it's kind of unfair to compare those two movies because apples and oranges. But it's just like, he just sucks. Like, he's one of those. He's a fraud. He's like <laughs> like Eddie Redmayne, this like borderline <laughs> crime perpetrated on the movie going public. And that also, I need to find an American that I could put that onus on too <laughs> i know reed always was uh justin long was one he referenced as like a, a fraud so that was weird. like a, but like i think justin long's great i i like uh going the distance a lot but those actors you know we always talked famously about the orlando bloom experiment but with all those people we just listed even eddie redmayne i've seen a couple things where i'm just like yeah okay uh that, that that's good that's fine and you know with orlando bloom we always got Elizabeth town, yep. but with like Sam Worthington. And again, I got to be completely honest Sitting in my apartment in college in 2010, watching the Academy Awards when fucking avatar was nominated for everything. And just seeing him sitting in the crowd with his sunglasses on watching and just total. <laughs> I'm so above this when Alec Baldwin and Steve Martin were doing their monologue that <laughs> I, I don't know what he can do to recover from that. Like he, it's, <laughs> It's going to take some Mickey Rourke in the wrestler level performance for me to like 
and say, okay, you, you can come back. You can come to the house again and watch TV. But um, <laughs> he's just kind of dead behind the eyes. And I, I'd be curious to know his whole story. If it's like this was his dream his whole life to be an actor or if he's just one of those people. I mean, he's a good looking cat. If he just kind of fell into it through just a series of, you know, happenstance, as we say. According to his Wikipedia page, he went to the uh, John Curtin College of Arts and specialized in dramatic, <laughs> specialized in dramatic arts and studied drama. Okay, well, apparently he was into it. He did not graduate. It's just everything he says, and even in this movie, where I don't know, with the exception of David Wenham, uh, I don't think I knew a single soul in this. Well, you and knew even, Timothy's Paul. I mean, you, you didn't know oh, that you knew right. him. Yeah. So with that being said, two other people in this movie I had prior knowledge of. And that's where I know Timothy Spall from is Vanilla Sky. I was trying to figure out what movie I know him from, but that's it. Oh, okay. yeah, he's a Vanilla Sky. So we figured it out. But that being said, in a movie where Sam Worthington is, to me, the star, because I just know him from the shit he's done or did 10 years ago and have little to no knowledge of everyone else. Everyone else in the movie dwarfed him, like from an acting perspective, <laughs> like David Wenham is great. Uh, the lady who plays Annie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, she's really young good. lady. Uh, Freya Stafford is her name. She's great. And it gets to a point where if he is going to just be the clash of the Titans guy, cool. You're just going to be the Avatar guy or the Terminator guy. I, you know, I don't particularly care for you, but I, that's why I said his in Terminator is perfect because he's like a robot, even though he's not, and you know all that bullshit. But I'm just looking at his damn IMDb page, Avatar two, three, four, five. Jake Sully. Jake Sully will return in Avatar four. Suck my ass. Like it's. I want to see Hacksaw Ridge. Again, I think it's funny that that's like the highest profile movie he's done since know, one of those Clash movies. And it's a movie that inherently comes along with some controversy because Mel Gibson's attached. I'd be curious to talk to people uh, specifically from this movie and what he was like to work with and then what he became to work with after he, you know, was Terminator or Avatar um, what if he had a black eye at the Oscars and that's why he was wearing the sunglasses uh, it would have been cooler if he didn't cover up his black eye <laughs> the cat again, is not going to let him get away with that there you know the the industry that I have chosen to dedicate a huge chunk of my life to professional wrestling is riddled with the absolute worst people that have like <laughs> the spottiest histories of life and even into the, the realm of crime that I just kind of push aside and I'm just like, yeah, but they had a great match with Sheamus on raw this week. Uh, that's what I want to talk about. And then with Sam Worthington, he's done nothing to me and probably is an all right guy, but because I saw a three second shot of him on an award show 12 years ago, wearing sunglasses, I forever am just bitter towards him, but I tried to put that aside from this. And I know we were talking about it in the first portion from a perspective of being satirical. I really, I just don't believe him. I don't, it, you know, I said that I, I kind of feel like he doesn't want to be there in anything I've seen him in. And, um, 
a line you you like to use, and we talked about on our Snowpiercer episode, is it's a lot to ask of somebody. This movie isn't inherently too much to ask of any of its players, but I really felt like for what it is and some of the individual performances, there were people in this that rose to the occasion of a good to great performance Mm -hmm. and just kind of seemed like his presence comes across as you are lucky to be watching me or you are lucky to be on screen with me. And that's kind of my my thought on Sam Worthington. See, I don't uh, I don't see it that way. I or I don't perceive it that way. But I don't like him either way. Like um, in this movie, like I said, I've defended him. I I think he's fine in Salvation. I think he's fine in Avatar. Like, he hasn't blown me away in either of those movies. I don't remember Clash of the Titans, and I never watched the sequel. I've, I remember I haven't seen either of them. <laughs> I mean, I I thought Hacksaw Ridge was great, and I remember liking him in it. It, but it's a small part, and I think it's just more, you know, he's not carrying the movie. He's just in there as a, in, you know, as a supporting player. And I, I remember liking him and Vince Vaughn. Here, though, it's the first time that I've actually found him boring. Like, he was just bland. I mean, of course, it's a, it's, it's a performance, but I think it was the first time that I felt it was the actor. And, of course, we're talking about, like, Sam Worthington all these years ago. But it it felt to me like whatever screen persona he has developed since, you know, he didn't have it then. That's why I felt watching it. I was like, man, it looks like they they got him pretty green. And, you know, because his character does so little. He's, uh, like I said in the dress corner, they mostly paint him as this good guy. Even though he's, you know, he went to prison for allegedly killing someone. And he was involved in shady business with shady people. But he comes out as kind of a Boy Scout, no matter what. And... Yeah, that's that's like a huge thing I had because I was just referencing um, the town and like Jeremy Renner in that movie. Yeah, that motherfucker is like hardened. <laughs> and this one of the things I made reference to in the the first portion in Contrarian's Corner was Boy Scout is a perfect choice of words because he's I, I understand the idea of you're trying to do good now that you're on the outside, but his character is written and portrayed like. Uh, I've got this friend that I kind of help do crime, but on you know I'm like this. <laughs> this you know compass and i i lead you towards the the motherland and i i lead you into the light and i am this mm-hmm. beacon of hope and then in the last two minutes of the movie he just becomes this trash talking badass all of a sudden again and it's fuck off <laughs> i didn't feel the movie helped him and then because the movie was giving him so little to do i think that you needed somebody with a lot more uh charisma like a stronger persona somebody that can just even with so little to do could still captivate you and make you miss him like you say like you know make you make you miss him when he's not on screen but here mm-hmm. that wasn't the case i just you know i didn't really care to be fair i didn't care for many of the people in this movie not to the extent that i didn't care like when i was watching jason takes manhattan right watching jason takes manhattan i was like actively rooting against them here it was more like ah, eh, Wharton was boring uh david wenham I did, like I said in the first corner, like, I found him just too much. It was just mm-hmm. relentless clowning. And I liked, uh, oh God, I forgot his name, uh, Timothy Spall. I like Timothy Spall. I, I think it was weird that the movie devoted so much time to him. It felt weird to me watching it. I think that if I watched it again, that wouldn't be the case anymore because I, I would know what I was getting into. But it made me feel like, like I wish that the movie had 
100% being about his character. And then everybody else had actually being a proper supporting story. And it was just about this guy with the restaurant and the past and trying to move, you know, forward. I think maybe because his story was the most relatable, even though I've never, you know, started a business with fraudle and money or anything. But I was like, I totally get this guy. You know, like he said, I paid my dues. I paid my, you know, I did the time. And then what I did with the money is none of your business, except that the <laughs> it is, you know, the government's business. So I think that this is partly on me, that I went into the movie wanting, expecting uh, a, a kind of like a quirky crime drama. And that's not really what I got. But mm-hmm. it took me a long time to catch up to like realize that we were really not getting that. Like, like I said in the first corner, you know, when after that opening with the, you know, with the spit getting shot, I really thought it was going to be a lot more Reservoir Dogs. And instead it was more of a, I don't know, I don't even know what to compare it to. You know, it's just like this very like, I don't want to say low stakes, but there's just, there's not a whole lot of uh there is no sense of urgency at any point in this movie. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people just talking about the plot and explaining to you, like, <laughs> the machinations and how, like, tracking the money and explaining who owes who what and why they can't trust this person and all that stuff. And it's like, I just, I didn't care enough to follow, you know? And I never got as lost as I pretended I was in Katrina's Corner, but there was a point in the movie where I was like, where they were still explaining stuff, and I'm like, I... I know this, but I don't care, and it's so much effort to pay attention. <laughs> so I was like ready for it to like just get to the heist, and and at least you know we'll we'll switch gears and and you know be doing something else. So I think that 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 kind of hurt the movie as well. I imagine a rewatch would help me get through some of these issues, knowing you know now knowing what to expect. There's certainly something to be said for going back or blind into this one and being. Uh, kind of misled by the opening of the movie and I guess what what little I knew of it. You know, I mean, what did you know going in, Alex? You knew that it was some Worthington and you know that Chaz liked it. Even that was about the extent of it. I didn't even, like, read up on it. I read up on it, like, about halfway through the movie. I found what I could in terms of things to reference for this podcast, which, again, is very minimal. Uh, but I was just like, let's just go into this and see what happens. And you can't make a movie like this, especially in 2003, and not expect to be compared to snatch or something like that because it's it's the way it's going to be or the oceans movie at the time because it just seems like that type of movie and there's nothing wrong with making something in that vein that's shit that's the american the the global movie industry is just comes in waves of what's popular i'm still waiting for this superhero shit to die down but it's (laughs) uh you got to put your own spin on it man if you want to make something that endures and something that people like you and i don't watch 20 years later and be like meh you know, it's the sense of urgency thing, like I said, and in comparing it to Snatch, because it's within the same three or four years of Snatch was the climax of Snatch is like, oh, my God, what the fuck's going to happen? This is crazy. And, uh, you know, Brad Pitt, what's he going to do? He's going to get killed. <laughs> and then with this, it's just kind of like, OK, what are they doing? All right. All right. So they're not doing that. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's a happy ending. Yeah, I don't want to be too harsh on it because uh, we 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 let off with the negatives, and I think the most negative thing of it is I can say is it's just it's unremarkable, in my opinion. And the Sam Worthington thing wasn't eased at all by this, and uh, it just felt like something I'd seen a bunch before, but just kind of 
even a little bit tamer. I'm curious if there's any different types of regulations about in America, you just say and do whatever you want in a movie. And then, you know, cause there wasn't much violence to really speak of in this, which may have been completely by design. Uh, so with that being said, Julio, let's, let's try to point out some positives. And we both were very complimentary of the Darren Barrington character, Timothy Spall, both aesthetically and, um, you know, audibly one of the, the finer points in the movie. And someone, like you said, whose story is hilariously relatable. And so, like, in the end, when he got out, I was happy for his character that he, yep. like, succeeded in the end. That that was cool. And then I really, at one point in this movie, had wished that David Wenham had been the lead. I understand it's hard to do in a movie like this where you make the heroin addict, like, the lead, uh, the protagonist, and then had Barry as, like, the background character. Because to me, it felt like there were more interesting aspects to the uh, Spiteri character than there were to berries like i don't the cooking thing never paid off i don't give a shit and like <laughs> that weird side plot where it looked like barry was gonna bang darren's wife and that didn't happen but spateri had like the whole he was getting tied up with everyone and you know screwing things up with both darren and uh chica and then got involved with the cic so here's a big one that whole deposition scene with him that was presented and written like he was the main character of the movie because then they spent like this long chunk of time on him covering that and it was distracting to the point of like okay well what does this have to do with Barry like it, I understand it all paid off in the end mm -hmm. but this movie it really felt like it wanted to be a oceans snatch whatever those movies where it's four or five plots that come into one big uh, smoke and aces perfect reference you made earlier they all pay off in the end, but it couldn't help itself from focusing mainly on Barry so that the parts where it did become about something else, it was kind of disorienting to you as a viewer. It's like, okay, how much attention am I supposed to be paying to this? Because Barry is not involved. Yeah, I, I, I had a similar feeling whenever we we had long sequences involving uh, Spit. And, and that one in particular, yeah, the one where he's, you know, the deposition, because I was like, why are we spending so much time with him? Especially because I, I felt, and see, I, I enjoyed the character less than you did. So to me, I'm like, I get oh. the joke. You know, I was like, I get it. You know, he is, even though he's an idiot, he is outsmarting these guys. And it seems like he's doing it even accidentally, like in spite of himself. But to me, that's just like a a one scene joke and then you move on and it's like we kept coming back to it i like the payoff i like when the guy like gives him the 20 i laughed and then when the <laughs> he goes back to his wallet and he doesn't have any money and then the other lawyer yeah. has like that was really funny but i kind of wish that you're right i wish that this was happening to like the main character <laughs> not this not this glorified supporting character that i don't i didn't really care for but i i agree like you know all those quotes that were praising that moment that that sequence they're right. You know, it's like on its own, separate from everything else. It's it's really good. I guess it, it was part of, you know, when the movie's not working for you, then even the things that work on their own, are, yep. it's a lot harder for them to connect. This is not like a positive, but it's it, it, not necessarily a negative. This is just kind of, I was thinking about this while I was watching it. I think I even wrote it down, which is that uh, reminded me of uh, Lucky Numbers 11. Do you ever see that? Okay. Josh Hartnett? Mm -mm. That was a movie that I was watching it and I felt it even more strongly than I felt the connection between Getting Square and whatever Guy Ritchie movie you want to pick. I remember watching Lucky Numbers 11 and feeling like, man, this is a big Tarantino fan that made this movie, but it doesn't mm -hmm. have the Tarantino magic. All I could see 
all I could feel when I was watching Lucky Number Eleven was just like some guy like really aping Tarantino and just not, you know, like kind of like copying the homework, but not really yeah. putting the soul behind it. But I've met people, actually, I think, uh, I think even like our friend John Keaty, we might have had an exchange on Twitter when he, where he was talking that he likes Lucky Number Eleven, you know, so it has its fans. But to me, I just, watching it, I could never get past that barrier of like, this is Tarantino, but not as good. And uh, I didn't have that stronger reaction here where I'm, you know, where the Danny Boyle thing or not Danny Boyle, where the Guy Ritchie thing was an obstacle, but it was kind of like along the same lines of thought of like, oh, like this, but not as good as this. If I watched a Peruvian movie that was, you know, the Peruvian version of a, a Guy Ritchie movie, I would flip the fuck out. <laughs> Regardless of quality. And I'm not saying this to cheapen Chaz's opinion or Mel's opinion or anybody in Australia's opinion, you know, but rather to uh, to kind of make the point that we're making earlier, which is that th- that has to affect you on some level. And that's not a necessarily a bad thing, you know? It's like, oh, good for you. If, if, if there's something else, an extra element of the movie that allows you to enjoy it even more, even yep. if... You know, it's something that might keep other people away. Like, you know, you wouldn't get anything out of seeing the Peruvian version of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I would, uh, because I'm like, that's so weird. And I've had somewhat those experiences watching some Peruvian movies. I'm not going to say that that makes automatically every Peruvian movie a winner in my book. In fact, I don't like most Peruvian movies I've seen. But whenever I've seen one that where I can like, trace the references very directly kind of like it tickles me the right way and uh even while at the same time i could like step back and go you know what this is i wouldn't call this remarkable except for the fact that it was made in peru and it's like the peruvian version of this right uh like the last peruvian movie i watched was a few months ago and it was a this sort of like dramatic thriller and if i tell you the story it's just your standard thriller Mm -hmm. but then when you add to it the fact that it's happening in peru and some of the things that happen like have tiny tie-ins to peruvian history then suddenly that's like special i don't know that they would register you know for anybody that's not peruvian but to me i'm like that that makes it worth watching and i think that maybe on the same level you could maybe translate it to something even smaller uh, you know we live in Austin, and then what happens if you watch a movie that was made in Austin, and it feels very Austin? But then I've had the opposite reaction to something like that. I remember watching a movie, a comedy, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I want to say it was at the Austin Film Festival, but it was a an Austin production. It was it was very Austin, and I hated it. But there were a lot of people in the audience that loved it for that same reason because I'm like, oh man, that's just that's Austin, and that's that's my Austin experience. And I just didn't, I wasn't feeling it. So I think that it could work both ways. Do you remember ever watching a movie where the fact that it was set, the setting was very close to you, actually worked against your your experience of watching it? I don't know. I don't know about that. I know there's definitely things that I'm protective of because of sentimental attachment, just be it, even if it's just through proximity of location. But uh, there's a lot of things that I think glorify Austin that annoy me, but that's in the year 2021. Not always, <laughs> I think. And I think the one of the biggest points I want to get across before I go any further into this is like it's natural that especially me, because you obviously are not from America originally, but it's like there's no way I'm not going to come off as a 
xenophobic, pretentious American with like saying, oh, yeah, I've seen it before. But let me be clear. If I could live in Australia right now instead of America, I probably would. So I want to make that clear. It's just, you know, a byproduct of where I was raised was America. And we see so much of this shit. And another big part of that is because of that, there's nothing that's really special to us because we get everything. So the things that I do have to hold dear to my heart and be protective of, uh, the things that I enjoy have to be way more niche things than film. It's going to be like some music or of course wrestling or fights or, you know, there's an example. There's this, we're coming up on the 10 year mark of this fight, Frankie Edgar and gray Maynard, their third fight, their title fight in Houston, Texas, UFC 136. I was at that event and I think that is like the greatest fight in UFC history. Uh, but I don't know if there's anyone else on the planet that would agree with me on that. And a huge part of it is like, I was there, the feeling of it all, like just being able to relate so near and dear to it really, uh, left an indelible imprint on me in relation to that. So, and kind of more in a broad sense and not just specifically applying to Chaz here. It's kind of like I talked about, um, when you dragged me down that path of the superhero, the Marvel bullshit, (laughs) the whole black Panther thing, the Captain Marvel shit of people that for some reason get upset that historically disenfranchised races or genders uh, are getting featured in a prominent way that they never had been before. For some reason, that makes people uncomfortable. And my thought was always good. Let that let let those people have this moment and something to cherish. Obviously, that's a much bigger overarching thing than just a, a movie that's specific to nationality. But that's to say that I get it. And it's like the only reason I'm really you and I are going back and forth trashing this movie is because our opinion was asked of it. And uh, right. I don't that, resent anybody for liking <laughs> get it. <square>. No, <laughs> it's just like the analogy I made with this fight that I love so much. And some of these shows I've been to in the past, it's just like, I completely get why Chaz would like this. And I think it's cool that he has a movie like this to reference when, like I said, because there really doesn't f- the move, basically the way the film industry's worked in America for the past 25 years, there's really nothing that feels special or individualistic. Um, if it is, it has to be something that, you know, you go out of your way to see. Maybe that's why I have such like a fucking raging hard on for good time because that, um, uncut gems was the one that got like celebrated on a, a global scale. Whereas good time still feels like it's something that I can just hold dear to my white trash heart. And so like, <laughs> I, I get the, the whole idea of it all. I think there's something to be said also for the, the indie aspect of it. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I, I, yeah. to me, this felt like an independent Australian movie, which to me is like, that makes it extra special. And it's just sometimes it's easier to, or it's more difficult to connect with that after the fact, you know, like to factor in that context. It's like, hey, on top of that, they were not working with the resources then that, you know, Guy Ritchie or any of the other filmmakers that we would compare them to, you know, that, that they had. So so there's also that. It's, uh, again, it's just kind of hard to, like, point that out without sounding condescending. It was like, I wish I could make a movie like Getting Square, you know? But it's just, yeah. in the end, I think that as we were talking about it, I realized that my real problem with the movie is not, it has nothing to do with how much it looks like a Guy Ritchie movie without being a Guy Ritchie movie. It's just that I don't have anything to connect to just on a on an emotional level. Like the closest I come to is the Timothy Spall story, but it, that's not the main drive of the movie. That kind of like comes and goes. And so everything else is just artifice. 
and it's not enough, you know. That's I, a great I think, point. Yeah, I, I think that some some people can connect to the artifice. I, I think that there's, and I know it's happened to me sometimes where like there are movies where I'm just in love with the way the story is told, and even if I don't connect to any character, just the the audacity of the filmmaking is enough for me to just fall for it 100%. But that's not the case here. Like, I don't think that there's... The storytelling in Getting Square is not blowing me away. And that wouldn't matter if I was all in on at least one character and and that carried me through the movie, but that doesn't happen. I would be curious to see if Chas and Mel and any other Australian listeners, like if they have a connection to a specific character that really makes them And the other seven people in Australia. (laughs) Or if what's creating that emotional connection is the fact that it's an independent movie from Australia. And that's, you know, that kind Mm. of like source of, it's a source of pride that also gives you that, that emotionality, you know, added to the experience. I'll I'll be curious. I think Ryan from Spit Unpolished has also seen it because he mentioned that, you know, he saw that we were doing it. So I'll be curious to just see what what exactly makes watching this movie extra special for them. But but whatever it is, like it's not happening for me, you know. And and yeah. I know that it would be if I cared, you know, for Sam Worthington or for uh, Spit or for you know or if Timothy Spall was a bigger part of the movie. But as it is, like it's not. So I'm just not. It kind of left me cold. Yeah, I think that's a pretty on the nose encapsulation of my thoughts on it as well. Just kind of a movie that just kind of happened, and I was like, okay, Can't, not being able to relate to anything is a big part of it, and that's not necessarily exclusive to film. As with everything in life, I have you know a wrestling related story to it. There's been plenty of times <laughs> where I've gone to like independent shows and have no idea who these people are, but then the crowd, like the way they react to them, like they're they're fucking you know the second coming of Jesus just came to earth, and I'm just kind of sitting there like, all right. I, I guess, and then because I have really nothing to connect to with it by the end of it, I'm just like, okay, well, now I can go on the internet and say this guy sucks because I didn't get it. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do with getting getting square. All right, that, that, there's the last thing to talk about. It went from me, making me laugh to annoying me to making me respect how many times they used getting square in the movie. They used the, <laughs> the verbiage or just used the word square. By the end of it, I was just like, God damn right, the last thing in the movie is a postcard that said, got square. <laughs> yeah, I, th- that made me laugh. That, that was, uh, I had a joke that i written where I was like, hey, Alex, do you think that the title of the movie is getting square? I couldn't figure out how to phrase it. But yeah, that's, <laughs> it made me wonder if that's something like, if it's something that is said as often in that set of circumstances. Right. Or if it was just the filmmakers having fun with it and like, fuck it, you know, this is what it's called and we're going to use it as much as possible. I I can't even think of a a, sort of like a Texan idiom that we would use that often. Like if the movie was called Y'all or Dr. Pepper, we would (laughs) be every other word. (laughs) In recap or kind of my closing thought on it is if it seemed like. I was coming across negatively about it. It's really just because I I was interested to have and excited to have this discussion with you, Julio, about it. I'm already starting to guess that I don't feel as negatively about it as probably some of my emotions that came across in this. It's more or less, but it's two things. It's one, just me trying to make sense of why I didn't like it, and that really helped having you to play off of. And then two, some of it is to rile up Chaz. And then I guess it's three things. And then because three, it's just Sam Worthington is a, a, a total fraud. And I feel it's my duty in many ways to just out him. 
uh, as the the lie, the con hint that he is. That being said, I mean, if this showed up on Showtime or HBO or something and I was doing nothing on a rainy day for David Wenham's performance and just Timothy Spall, I feel it would warrant a rewatch. And then even more so, I may just rewatch this at some point uh, to make sure that I understand understood the plot fully because, like I said, I had to go back at a few points. And, and the Departed scene is good and was not kidding in the first portion that like really like blew my mind. I had to pause the movie for a minute and then like go check <laughs> and make sure that I remembered correctly that the departed came out two years after this. Um, Did you like that, uh, that moment? Is that the one time that you've liked a, a performance or a part of a performance by Sam Worthington? Yeah. He didn't say anything. It was perfect. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, it was great. It was, that was after, he kicked that cop out of his restaurant, right? And then he caught him down the road, and that's why right. he beat him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's for what it was trying to accomplish, it was perfect. And uh, very interesting song choice. It was clear that Toplitsky, the director, Mr. Jonathan Toplitsky, it seemed to me that like he knew going into it, like that, that might have been the first scene that he put to paper. Uh, from a, a visual perspective, uh, obviously, uh, Neist, Neist wrote this, but you know how sometimes you see a scene in a movie that from a, qu- a quality standpoint almost seems so superior to everything else in the movie. Mm-hmm. It really feels like it's the, the part of the movie the director had the most passionate about or whatnot. And so it really shined through in that scene. I thought that was a fine piece of business. I agree. I agree. I actually, that was memorable. That might be like the one moment that I remember down the line. Because of the way it was cut, too, like, you know, because it was going back and forth between that and him at the girl's apartment and all that stuff. So what's what's your letter grade? I'm teetering between a C plus and a B minus right now, because, again, there are parts of this that are really. Yeah, I'm going to go with a C plus. There's not enough good for me to warrant that above average grade. But the things I enjoyed, I really enjoyed about it. And like I said, through this discussion, it kind of helped me flush out more of some of the things that were making me wonder why I wasn't getting as invested and whatnot. But the things I like, I really like. The thing I don't like, I don't, but it doesn't necessarily <laughs> bog down the entire movie. So let's let's give this bad boy a C plus. Yeah, I am I'm also teetering. I'm I'm between two and a half stars and three stars. Really, I, I have a feeling that if I watch the movie again, it's gonna be it's gonna land solidly on three stars. This mm-hmm. is one of those instances and I, I've said it in multiple episodes before that were I know that a rewatch would actually improve the experience because it's one of those cases where knowing where I'm headed while watching the movie it's just going to help here watching it I was too caught up on what I thought the movie was going to be and the fact that it was not being that movie as I was watching it that is a very real thing that that is something we have talked about on this podcast numerous times a first time viewing of you trying to make the movie something it's not can really, it's like throwing a bucket of water on a fire. It can really interfere <laughs> with what you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I just didn't have patience for it. I could feel myself just getting antsy and going like, all right, enough with the talking and just like, let's just get to like, can we start the movie? You know, like, <laughs> and now I know that that's not that the movie had already started. That's that, that's yeah. what the movie was. But the other thing is Mel mentioned it on her review and that was that, that she called this a neo-noir and you know it's documented in the history of the contrarians i'm like noir as a genre and neo-noir too like it's just i have trouble with it because of the most of the time because of the convoluted 
plotting and that's mm-hmm. you know that's the case here like that it didn't help that there was the plot was just unnecessarily complicated for me at yeah. least on a first watch yeah. not always the case you know i mean uh patrons know that we both loved uh under the silver lake which is yeah as complicated as you can get <laughs> <laughs> But but in this case, I think because I had again going back to the emotional connection, I had less of an emotional connection to the movie, so I also had less patience for for its plot. So I'm going to give it two and a half stars, fully acknowledging that it might go up. Very likely that will go up to three stars if I watch it again. Chaz, I hope you don't demand a refund or anything after this. <laughs> you know, we'd... Alex, is it better than American Hustle? Uh, I would be infinitely more inclined to revisit Getting Square than I would American Hustle. <laughs> well, that's something. See? There you go. That's not even the nicest thing I can say about it, that it's better than American <laughs> Hustle. I can say a lot of other nice things about it. But there's got to be a part of Chaz that knew coming into this that it uh, may not have worked for us the same way it did for him. But got a lot of good discussion points out of it. I really, really do like the patron aspect of this when it comes to movies that I've never even heard of before. Obviously, you just mentioned Under the Silver Lake. That was awesome. And then something like this, while I don't love it as much as I'm not as crazy about it as I was Under the Silver Lake, it's still like it's something that I would have never seen had it not been for this situation or even known about. So for that, I'm very like thankful and that's something I really enjoy about doing this. I know there's a lot of people that are inclined to when they get that access as a patron to recommend something to see how much fun we can have with it a la daddy daycare but like this this was awesome and this is kind of my favorite aspect of it is finding new movies and things that i don't even know about because that's it's not somewhere i expected this journey of this podcast to go because i always just expected us to find shit that (laughs) is universally loved or hated and then figure out a way to make it go the other way. So that's my way of saying, while, you know, I probably didn't give this movie the review that Chaz was hoping I would, I'm appreciative that he brought it on, put it on our desk because it was covered a new area I would have never known about. But also I would add that it also opens the conversation because it's uh, like, it's happened before, like when uh, another patron, when Ben, gave us end of days right and we we watched that oh that was also for the patron feed and uh we watched end of days and we were nowhere near as positive on it as he was but then we posed the question just like we have with Chaz now it was like but what do you like about it and his response was like illuminating you know i was like i still don't like it but i totally get your point yeah <laughs> and so just knowing that at some point Chaz, you know will make time in his busy life to kind of shoot us a message explaining what we got wrong or what we missed uh, about getting square and what he loves about it. That that's actually that I find that exciting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Look forward to it. So thank you, Chaz for being one of our wonderful patrons. And again, thank you for bringing getting square across the contrarian's desk and assigning us this homework. So Julio, that wraps up this episode. Where are we heading next? Next, oh, I mean, we've been talking about that Little Women episode, and like we've referenced before, it should be out by now on the Patreon feeds. So if you're a patron, you have that. But then, coming up in about you know ten days or so, we start uh, we start paying our 
our new live stream debt. We yes. we met all our goals during our live stream for the cure segment, which means that we have four M Night Shyamalan movies to do on the show. And uh, unlike last time, where we waited until the last possible minute to take care of those uh, 90 sexy thrillers, <laughs> this time we're we're knocking this out early. Uh, so, uh, what did you call it, Alex? Uh, Shyamalanthology? Shyamalanthology, yeah. yes. Yeah, we have the first of four M. Night Shyamalan episodes coming your way. We're going to start with the, the worst. We're, we're going to start at the bottom of the barrel and climb Let's our get way. get out of the way. Yes, it's The Last Airbender, which, Alex, you haven't seen, correct? Hell no. <laughs> well, I've seen it. Not looking forward Why to Why would I have seen it? Other than having to screen it, I don't know of any reason... Well, I don't know. It could potentially have dated someone at that point in time that wanted to go see it. But no, it. I stopped seeing Shyamalan movies after The Happening. That was like that's when I threw in the towel. You missed out on this. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's going to be the same if you're not watching on the big screen. But we'll give it a shot. And well, fingers crossed. <laughs> so that is next. Also, for those of you who want to, who like to keep up on our. Uh, non-contrarians appearances uh well alex mentioned he he recorded with gerald from to peace on a podcast i don't know when that's coming out but whenever it does we'll let you know uh i recorded with our friends from film busters uh we talked about limelight i want to say that by the time that you listen to this episode that that limelight episode from film busters should be out that's a charles chaplin movie that was very different from all the other chaplains i've seen before it was great. I was able to just crack open the Criterion that I hadn't watched yet and just have a good discussion with Ben, Paul, and Adam. Uh, and also, a while ago, I recorded an episode with uh, Stu from the Stu World Order podcast. He's a, a big supporter of the show, and he has a podcast now that's uh, all about uh, superhero movies. Alex, your favorite topic. <laughs> just uh, He has a list of, like I think, 200 movies, and he's just at random reviewing he's not going in any sort of order just uh if you're if he invites you to the show you give him three numbers he correlates those numbers to his list and then he gives you the three choices and you pick one movie and in my case i don't remember what my other options were but i picked superman 3 which i hadn't seen since i was a kid uh, have you nice. seen the christopher reeve supermans uh when i was a, a child well superman 3 is the one that has richard pryor in it which is weird, to say the least. <laughs> so <laughs> give me an excuse to rewatch Superman 3 and then have a, a really good discussion with Stu about it. So check that out. I know for a fact that one's already out. Uh, Stu World Order. Again, you know, we'll put links to Film Busters, Two Piece in a Pod, and Stu World Order all on our show notes. So you can check that out. You know, listen to more of our voices until our new episode drops. Huge, huge fan of you calling him Charles Chaplin. <laughs> As opposed to Charlie, yeah, Chuck. I've always, I've always known him as Charlie Chaplin. So the whole, the formality of the Charles, I'm a huge fan of. Well, you know, I my film school was called Charles Chaplin. It wasn't Charlie Chaplin. It was Charles Chaplin. <laughs> I think Fair that's, enough. I think that's where I got it from. I, I, I hadn't even realized I was doing that. I'll take it. It's more professional that way, Charles. <laughs> it's much more so. <laughs> yeah. All raises right. our credibility greatly. Uh, people will take us much more seriously now. Uh, it wasn't the Travolta penises. It was the Charles <laughs> Chaplin. That is what is in the future. That wraps up getting square. Let's take it out and take it to perennial plugs. We want to start off, as always, with the Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. 
They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Rathgeser, he's the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our Patreon page, on our website, on our upcoming merch. He's also a novelist. You can check out his work on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also reach Hans on Twitter at Mildemonios, or you can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. If you want to talk to him about his novels, he has a bunch of zombie novels. Uh, the most recent one is an anthology of short stories written by different Peruvian authors. Each story takes place in the Peruvian region that the author is from. And he has two podcasts, That's Young Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy, not just Peruvian economy, economy in general. Uh, Hans is quite the Renaissance man, and it wouldn't surprise me, seeing as how he's always familiar with obscure movies, if he's actually seen Getting Square, whatever they called it in Spanish. And he'll act like we're weird for having not ever heard of it up until this point. <laughs> and he'll be with chats. He'll be like, this is a masterpiece. But uh, thank you for all your support, Hans. It's very much appreciated. And of course, Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps out with our social media game, helps make our Instagram account and our Facebook account very fancy and very aesthetically pleasing for you, the Contrarians fans. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Contrarian Prime and head over to facebook.com forward slash Contrarian Prime to give us a like ski. Uh, we have some pretty cool videos that have been going up on Facebook that are exclusive to that page, so check them out. And with all those pleasantries out of the way, that completes this episode of The Contrarians. Chaz, thank you once more for bringing this to our attention and being a supporter of The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong, and we will catch you next time.